The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. First Peter chapter 3 this morning. One thing that uh, I love to do, as a little joy in my life, is to coach the sports teams my son plays on. I know some of you other dads enjoy that as well. I enjoy being out there with the kids. I like being involved, seeing their excitement when they improve and succeed and maybe win some games. It's a lot of fun. But I do honestly hope that I'm a good role model for the kids and that they learn more from me than just some sports stuff. And so one thing I've tried to do the past few years to, to help with that, to help the team with something positive is to give the kids either a word or a motto to focus on and to think about that year. Sometimes it's just been one word and I've told the kids let's focus on the word respect, whatever that means and we talk about that. Well last year our motto during our basketball season was focus on what you can control and that's your attitude and your effort. And I told the boys you can't always control what the fans are yelling at you, you can't control what the other team's doing, you can't control what calls the referee makes. Sometimes you can't even control if shots that you shoot go in the goal. But you can always control your attitude and your effort. And that's not just in basketball. There are a lot of things in life that we can't control. A lot of things that we can't change. Things that we might say happen to us. And if we think of Peter's original audience, that's so true. Because these were Christians who had been scattered. They're suffering persecution. Peter has just spent quite some time teaching the value of humble submission to certain groups who were probably being oppressed and afflicted. Whether that be by their government, their masters, maybe even their own family. So from this world's perspective, these were groups that were not having a lot of good days but they could still focus on what they could control. They could still focus on their attitudes. They could focus on the way they lived, the way they served God. So I want you to consider this morning that the Bible teaches us that our days are not defined by what happens to us, but rather by how we live them. And so even when things happen to us that are beyond our control, things that we can't change, including suffering, including persecution, including evil, you as a Christian can still love life and see good days by focusing on what you can control, and that's ultimately your service to God. That's with each other as a church and also with how we respond to the outside world. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Peter says, finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. Knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. 
Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Peter sort of ends and summarizes this section by giving five descriptions in verse 8 that should characterize every single believer, regardless of social status, regardless of what may be happening in life that, that he or she can't control. He begins verse 8 with this, Finally, be ye all, and this isn't going to be news, but the word all means all. Every one of us should live lives where these descriptions fit. And we're going to go through these words here, and I, and I would caution us and encourage us that as we, as we look at these words and sort of break down what these things mean, let's look in the mirror instead of pointing our fingers. Say, well, you said everybody's supposed to do that, Brother Matt. Yes, you worry about what you can control, right? You look in the mirror, and let's honestly allow God's word and God's spirit to convict us if we need any help in these areas and with these virtues. And the very first one he mentions in verse 8 is that we should all be of one mind. Some translate it as, as having a unity of mind, uh, being harmonious, being like-minded. It's actually the only time in the New Testament this word is used, although if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 2, we don't see this exact word, but we see some similar phrases and, and absolutely some parallel teaching. Paul is going to urge this church to have one mindset. And then he's going to lay out what that mindset is and, and give the best example of someone who had it. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul said, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each other esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That is the unity of mind that we should have with one another. We should all have an attitude, a mindset that is a humble servant's mindset, just like Jesus in which we put the needs of others ahead of our own needs. Even if it, that takes some sacrificing on our part. So having the same mind or being united, it doesn't mean that we must have the same opinion about everything in the world. There may be foods that I like that you don't like. There may be hobbies you have that I could care less about. It's not the same opinion about every single thing, but it's the same attitude and the same mindset that Christ had, that we're humble servants. One, one author said it's a unity of disposition, not unity of opinion. And so honestly ask yourself this morning, do you have that mindset? 
does that describe you? The second description that Paul, or that Peter gives us, rather, is having compassion one of another. Some translate it as sympathetic, and that's a good word. The word really refers to sharing someone's feelings. Specifically here, though, it refers to sharing feelings when someone's hurting, uh, when they're suffering. Paul wrote in Romans that we should rejoice with those who rejoice. Sometimes that's a lot easier than what Paul said, and weep with those who weep. Maybe not always, but here Peter is, is more specifically talking about the way we're sympathetic towards someone's pain, towards their suffering and their hurt. And I want you to think about this. If the first virtue describes us and we actually do share the mind of Christ, then does it not come to reason and stand to reason that we would also share in the sympathy that Christ would have toward the pain and suffering of others? When one of us hurts, we should be sympathetic. We should be supportive. Don't be like Job's friends. When Job suffered and, and he went through everything that, that he faced, they didn't offer any sympathy, just explanations. Never mind, their explanations were wrong anyway. And do you remember what Job called them? Miserable comforters you are. Ah, the first, the first week his friends came to him, they didn't say a word, and Job eventually says, I, I wish it was... I wish you just would be quiet like you were that first week we were together. Don't be like Job's friends and offer explanations. Just be there for people and be supportive and sympathetic. Are you that way? Are you sympathetic towards people? The third description that Peter gives us here is this love. Love is brethren. Brotherly love, affectionate love. Though It's translated that way in, in different translations. This is similar to what Peter said in chapter 1 about us having unfeigned love of the brethren. He used that phrase. It's that, that our, our city, Philadelphia, comes from this word. And it's a strong word. In the first century, it referred to the, the warm, strong bond and connection between close family and close friends. And Peter says that we should possess this intimate, loving, warm affection towards each other. And back in chapter 1, when Peter used it, that phrase, that word unfeigned, he talked about how it wasn't to be faked. It's something that we don't manufacture. It's sincere. It's genuine. It's, it's not that actor putting on the mask and, and playing a part rather poorly. But this is to be genuine affection for each other, a genuine love. So ask yourself this morning, do you have that for your fellow church members, for your fellow Christians? Do you genuinely have loving, warm affection for them? The fourth thing that Peter mentions is, is being pitiful. And I know we use that word in a different way now. It's, it doesn't mean being terrible or being sorry or being useless. Like, man, that, that's pitiful. It literally means full of pity. Some translate it compassionate or having a tender heart or a kind heart. And that's, those are good translations. The word, the word here actually derives from a word that, that spoke about your internal organs. Your heart, your lungs, your, your stomach, your guts. And in the ancient world, they viewed your, your guts as the seat of emotions. So nowadays, we would just say your heart. And so what we would say is, do you have a heart within you that's full of pity for other people? Is your gut filled with compassion? 
really deep down in here is there some tenderness and some kindness or are you cold and harsh don't start pointing fingers at others look in the mirror does that describe you it should and then finally, the last virtue Peter mentions there is, is courteous. So your translation may say humble, and courteous and humble are very different. And the reason these two are so different, just to get halfway technical for a second, is there are differences in some of the ancient Greek manuscript copies here of which word is used. And so if we're talking about courteous, it refers to that friendliness and that kindness that we should have about us. Probably, though, the original reading is humility. And that fits with the very first thing Peter mentioned in this verse about having this mindset of Christ that, that speaks of humility, service, attitude. And so the very first thing he mentions and the very last thing he mentions just sort of bookend this list of, of it's all going to start with some humility. If you're proud, this, this list of virtues isn't going to describe you very well. It's going to take humility. And so we start with what we finish there. So let's all, let's all ask ourselves, and let's be honest, especially with our fellow church members, does this description or, or do these descriptions fit you? When people think about you and they said, describe brother so-and-so, describe sister so-and-so, are these things they would say, man, she's loving. He's so compassionate. She's so humble. Would they describe you like that? And, you know, no matter what's going on in the world or how other people are treating you, these are things you can control with the Lord's help. Nobody can stop you from being humble and loving and compassionate. And think about this. As we live in a, in a world that bad things happen, in a hostile world, things where suffering and evil do take place, how crucial is it then that we possess these for each other and be a wonderful haven for each other? Because this world's not going to treat us like this. And Peter's going to get to that in just a second in verse 9. As a church among us, we should never have to worry about what other people are thinking about us, what they're, what they're trying to do, what they're saying about us, what their motivation is. I can't control what's going on out there, but when we, when we are together as a church and when we... Among us, these, these descriptions should, should help us be a breath of fresh air for each other in, in a world that's wicked. We need each other, and we need, and we need each other to, to fit this description. Peter reminds us in verse 9 that there's evil and there's slander that, that you're facing out there. And I, I know these issues of evil and slander, God forbid, but they could happen among God's people. It's not that they... They never have. But Peter's turning back to the, the hostility of this world, the persecution and suffering they're facing, and how Christians should respond to it. Sort of this idea of, yes, verse 8, we have this amazing bond with each other, and we have this, this safe haven with each other, but we're strangers in this world. And this world's not going to share this same humility and this same love and this same affection with you that you and I share towards each other. But even though we can't control that, there is still a proper Christian response to that. And so notice, notice verse 9 again. Peter says, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. 
Have you ever seen children pestering each other, uh, maybe agitating and fussing with each other, fighting for, for whatever reason, and uh, the parent may get on to the children? And almost undoubtedly, one of them is going to say, well, he started it. Y'all, y'all see what happens at our house sometimes now. He, he started it. And I'm not, I'm not comparing real evil and slander and persecution to children fussing at each other. But we have no right to fight back maliciously and to retaliate and then turn to God and say, but they started it. You can't necessarily control whether someone wrongs you or slanders you, but you can control your response. And it should be like Christ's. Do the words of verse 9 here not make you think back to chapter 2 and how Peter has already described how we're to face unjust suffering with this gracious, quiet spirit, just like Christ did? Look back at chapter 2 and, and just look at verse 23. If we don't think of Jesus again in this verse, we're, we're doing something wrong. Verse 23 of chapter 2, Peter said, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Peter's teaching the same thing once again. We need to be like Jesus and entrust everything to God. Peter's already taught us how to face these unjust sufferings with this graceful endurance because that's what Jesus did. Don't fight evil with evil. But this time at the end of the verse, he goes a step further, doesn't he? Our response should be a little more than just quiet endurance. There's actually something more we should be doing during these situations. Notice about halfway through the verse, Peter says, but contrary-wise blessing. Let's be honest, that's tough. Not retaliating is one thing. Not, not getting into a war of words is one thing. But this is even tougher. Maybe even more, uh, more contrary to human nature is that when we receive evil, even, even if and when we don't deserve it, not only should we not retaliate and fight back, we should actually do the opposite, Peter says. We should bless the people who are bringing the evil. That's so hard. It's going to take the help of God's Spirit and His grace to do that because we are sinful people. But Jesus taught this very thing, didn't He? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. That is so foreign to this world. But isn't that what Jesus did? Remember that he prayed to the Father to forgive the very ones that were beating him and crucifying him. And it's that kind of humble, sacrificial love that can be the only thing that can end a cycle of evil. If we repay evil with more evil, all we're doing is multiplying evil. It's like trying to wash a car with a dirty, muddy rag. It's not going to do any good. You're smearing mud around. The Christian response to evil and hatred and persecution should be good. Blessing. Prayer for those who hate us. 
And I think it's fascinating that this comes from Peter. Think back to Peter and his, his demeanor and his attitude and his actions in the Gospels. This is the man who pulled his sword and cut a man's ear off in, quote, fighting back when Jesus was being arrested. And now he's telling us, you don't need to really be like I've been in the past. Don't repay evil with evil. One author said, Peter of all men should know what the grace of God had done for him in this respect. He had been not only fast with the sword, he had been quick with his tongue. But Peter has matured a lot in God's grace. And if we mature in God's grace, it can do a lot for us. And one reason God expects this mature response from us and this, this blessing is laid out at the end of the verse. Look at the end of verse 9. There's a reason we should do this and we can do this. It's because we know that ye are thereunto called that you should inherit a blessing. Think about it this way. If we struggle with the thought of blessing people who don't deserve it, well, we better be thankful that God didn't struggle with that. We didn't deserve one ounce of God's love and mercy and grace. And yet through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we stand to inherit a blessing. And God expects his children to become more like him. And in this context, if he blessed those who didn't deserve it, so should we. If he showered his grace on us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And we should be more like him and show that love and grace and blessing to people who don't deserve it. This really fits with Jesus' teaching about loving your enemies anyway. Blessing those who hate you. Jesus said there's a, there's a reason for loving your enemies. It makes you more like your father in heaven. Jesus said that he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Not only does God bless undeserving people with spiritual salvation, if we'll repent and trust Him, but even in everyday life, every single good thing and, and every single blessing, even in the lives of people who don't care one ounce about God, those things are still from God. Whether they like to admit it whether they're thankful, whether they give him credit or not. God blesses people who don't care a lick about him with life, health, breath, strength, food, family, you name it. That's how good God is. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And if we're going to be like him, then it takes grace instead of retaliation on our part. That's tough. But with his help and his grace, we can mature. And then look at verse 10 through 12. Peter is going to turn to the Old Testament to support this. He's going to give some Old Testament or, or an Old Testament reference to encourage these readers to give an example and sort of demonstrate that this is nothing new. In verse 10 through 12, these verses come from Psalm 34, which we'll turn to in, in a few minutes and we'll read Psalm 34. But I want you to notice, first of all, how they essentially parallel exactly what Peter just said. He's saying the same thing. He's just saying, this is from of old, guys. Look at verse 10 and 11. 
For he that will love life and see good days, now listen to this, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. So verse 10 and 11 give us an Old Testament parallel from the mouth of David in one of his Psalms. Basically the same thing that Peter just said in verse 9. Don't repay evil with evil. Don't return evil words with more evil words. Don't, don't fight back with your words. Don't fight back with your actions. That's always been a godly directive and things haven't changed. More than once in the New Testament, we're warned about the danger of our words. And in this context, it's when people speak evil against us. That may be something we can't control, but we can control not speaking evil in return. It's never acceptable in the sight of God to speak evil. It's never acceptable in the sight of God to speak deceitful words, even when others are doing that to you and about you. Words are important, and Peter deals with our actions as well, right? And in verse, verse 11, let him eschew evil. He dealt with words at the end of verse 10. He deals with, with actions at the start of verse 11. Some of you have a translation that says, turn away from evil. That's a good, good translation because the idea of this word is steering clear of something, avoiding it. And even sort of has the idea of, of, of leaning or bending out of the way. When I, when I was studying this word, it, it, it made me think of uh, something I loved to do in college my years at UCA. I loved to play flag football. And one of our best players was, was a short little guy who was fast and quick. The reason he was so good, though, is because he could bend his hips running full speed to where if somebody reached to get his flag, he just leaned over and avoided it. And that's kind of the picture of this word is that you should be able to lean out of the way of evil, steer clear of it, and avoid it. And I think we can apply that in just about any context, avoid evil. But once again, here in this specific context, Peter's dealing with Christians who are facing persecution, facing evil done to them, things they can't control, but they can control the avoidance of evil in their lives, specifically retaliation. Steer clear of that evil. And this is from David's words now. It's always been that way. Did David ever retaliate against Saul? No. The way God's people should, quote, fight back is with good. By blessing others. Peter's already said that, right? Contrary-wise blessing. But now the Old Testament parallel from David is the rest of verse 11, where David says, and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Or pursue it. Christian life is not just about being passive. There's more than just restraint. You can restrain your, your mouth, you can restrain your actions, but again, there's, there's something more to be done, and it's that blessing that Peter talked about. David says, do good. Something we should actively be doing. And he says, seek peace and ensue it. Some of you have the word pursue there. It's a really strong word and, and an interesting word because a lot of times this word is translating as per, uh, persecuting. It's the same word used to describe someone persecuting someone else. If you think about it, that gives us a strong picture because what happens when you're persecuting someone? Well, hopefully you don't know, but when someone else is persecuting, it means that every ounce of their effort 
is, is being poured into that. They are, they are giving all their energy, all their effort, focusing on hurting that person. And David has said, and Peter quoting David says, Christians should be hunting down peace with that same ferocity. Chase it down. That's strong. So what Peter quotes from David in Psalm 34 is, is essentially the same thing Peter just said in slightly different words. Don't be evil, be good. But the rest of the quote from Psalm 34 is maybe a bit surprising because notice the first part of verse 10. It says that this is, this is how you should act, this is how you should live if you desire to have a good life, if you desire to love life and see good days. Notice verse 10, for he that will love life and see good days, let him do this. Hopefully it is our desire to, to, to love life and to see good days. That's a godly desire. To look at our lives as a blessing. To look at this life that God has given us through the eyes of faith and thankfulness as an opportunity to serve Him. Not just something we're drudging through, even if trials may be happening. So if that's your desire, Peter and David say that if you desire to love life and see good days, it actually has nothing to do with what happens to you. It has everything to do with how you respond to it. Here's what you can control. Here's what you can, uh, here's what you can do to make your life a life well-loved and a life well-lived. Regardless of what happens to you, you remain faithful and do what God has said. You watch your words, watch your works, okay? You seek to do good, to bless others, hunt down peace. I want you to think about this. If, if you don't do that, but instead you're angry and you do seek retaliation, how much are you going to enjoy this life that God has given you? You're just going to be burnt up focusing on getting even. It will just drive you crazy instead of being like Jesus and just entrusting everything to God and focusing on what you can control, which is your service to God and how you respond to these things. Don't let your circumstances dictate your life. And skeptics would ask, Brother Matt, how in the world can you claim to love life or had good days if bad things are happening to you? Peter's original audience is being persecuted. They're scattered. How in the world are you talking about loving life and having good days in the midst of that? And the answer is in verse 12. The reason any of this makes sense is because of verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers but the face of the Lord is against them to do evil. This is all possible because God's in control and he sees everything. With the grace of God, we can respond to suffering and hatred and evil and persecution and slander with patient endurance, with blessing, with love, with peace, because we know that nothing escapes the gaze of God. Our God is looking down upon us. Even when we suffer. He knows what you're facing. He hears your prayers. What a friend we have in Jesus, we sang earlier. He is intimately aware of you. And not only that, 
But as the end of the verse indicates, he's intimately aware of what evil people may be doing or what evil things may be happening against you. And God will make all wrongs right one day. Which is why Jesus could entrust everything to the Father. Which is why we shouldn't take matters into our own hands. Just trust that God will do what he said he would do anyway. A lot of things we can't control. But ultimately, everything is in God's control. And if we understand that, if we understand God's sovereignty, and we live for him, we can live a life that we love, that's enjoyed, and see good days, no matter the trials and sufferings that we face. I loved what one author said here. He says, with God in control... Even persecution cannot make good days bad. And that's essentially what David learned and why Peter pulls from Psalm 34 here. I want you to turn to Psalm 34. David wrote Psalm 34 as a praise to God for his deliverance and for his help during a time of trouble. It was during that time when King Saul was pursuing him, hunting him down to kill him. And David made what I believe to be a a poor mistake or or a mistake, a poor decision to try to seek refuge with a foreign king. And it didn't really work out the way he he thought. You can you can read that story later on. It's during that time, though, that God still delivers David from his trouble. And David is going to write in this psalm. We'll see the verses Peter quoted from how life can even be enjoyed and considered good even during all this, even with all this going on. Look at Psalm 34. The heading says, A psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lighted, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps round about them that fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter quoted from that verse as well earlier. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Notice verse 12 through 16. What man is he that desires life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions uh, afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. I think it's easy to see why Peter pulled from this psalm multiple times. When David was being hunted by Saul and seeking refuge with a foreign king, David wrote that during these times, remaining godly and seeking God, seeking peace, is, is part of the secret to loving life and seeing good days. And so these persecuted Christians that Peter's writing to, they could still love their lives. They could still have that enjoyment. They could still see good days. Because any day you serve God and do what he's commanded you to do is a good day, regardless of what's happening. One author said, good days are not necessarily days that are free from problems. For the psalmist wrote about fears, troubles, afflictions, and even a broken heart. He says, a good day for the believer who loves life is not one in which he is pampered and sheltered, but one in which he experiences God's help and blessing because of life's problems and trials. Having a good life well-loved and well-lived doesn't mean that nothing bad ever happened to you. If that were the case, then not one human being could ever say they loved their lives and had, had any good days. Not one. But a day isn't defined by what happens to you, but by how you live it. We can't always control what this world throws at us and the way other people treat us, but we can focus on what we can control. On responding in a godly way. On our obedience, on our mindset, on our attitude, and on our Savior. So I hope this encourages you that loving life and seeing good days is not dependent on your situation in this world, but on our service to the Lord. So let's, let's live together in harmony, sympathy, love, pity, and humility, being that safe haven for one another. And then let's respond to the hatred of the outside world by blessing them by just showing that quiet, graceful endurance that Jesus, Jesus showed by hunting down peace, hopefully, so that others see the gospel played out in our lives and they turn to Christ before it's too late. Once again, isn't Jesus the ultimate example of all this? You think he loved life and saw good days? Absolutely. Maybe not the way this world would measure it. He was a poor man who, had, uh, who suffered so much evil against him that he was crucified when he was about 33 years old. But he saw good days because of how he lived them. Because he served the Father. And he lived that way so that we could inherit a blessing. He lived that way and gave his life that way for you. If you'll repent and trust him, he'll save you. If you still have Psalm 34 open, notice that Peter does not quote all of verse 16. He does say the face of the Lord is against them that do evil, but Peter ends the quote right there. And Peter does not say to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. I read one author that just said, Peter gives room for repentance. Isn't that the way 
Uh, isn't that the, one of the reasons why we should be responding the way we're responding anyway? Is so that others repent and believe in the same God that set us free? God's righteousness is the only thing that can erase every mark of evil in your life and save you forever. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, I'm praying that you'll make that decision today. Trust Him and then serve Him. Let's stand. Let's bow for a prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, we bow humbly before you and we thank you so much for your word and for the truths that you have safeguarded for us and, and passed down, Lord. God, when we face things that we can't control and suffer things we don't deserve, help us to be more like Christ and help us to see the value of that, Lord, and the, uh, the joy that can come from that. Father, I just pray for each one here and for our church. Lord, as this world just grows increasingly evil and hostile towards your word and your message each day, I pray that we will be a shining light in, in our lives and in, in our communities. For others to see the saving grace that you've given us through Jesus Christ, help us to be what you'd have us to be. And when we fail you, just forgive us in your grace. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you were encouraged by today's message from the Word of God. This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats, as well as our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening.